Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. I do greet you in the name of Jesus Christ. It's good to see you out this morning. I love the gathering of God's people in this place, and it truly is a celebration around the person and work of Jesus Christ. We are going to be looking at Exodus 19, but let me begin by simply citing or noting how last week we looked at Exodus 16 and that it's tie-in to John 6. And I wrote down as I listened to Jacob teach on Exodus 16 that in the study of the Scripture, in the study of our Bibles, There is no way to explain, humanly explain, the Bible's continuity or singularity apart from divine inspiration. When you look at all the moving parts and you consider how this book was fashioned, the only way that we can explain its continuity and singularity is through divine inspiration. Because the Bible does indeed teach a single story, and at the center of this story is Jesus Christ. We are looking at Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 9 this morning. And will give us an historical context, then the theological context, and finally its typological context concerning this particular text. But chapter 19 is for us an introduction into the law itself or the law proper. And what we will see is that what Israel failed to do in keeping the law, Jesus did. His people enjoy all the benefits of the law because of his perfect obedience to the law. There are three questions I'd like us to consider when we look at the idea of the law as it's found in Exodus 19 through 40. First question is this, why was the law, why was the law given to Israel? That's the first question that you have to ask yourself. In Exodus 19, God gives this extensive giving of law to the nation of Israel. So why was it given? Why did Israel receive the law? And then are we, as uh, the New Testament church, New Testament believers under a new covenant, are we under that law? And then finally, what is legalism? And I think if we understand the nature of the law, if we answer those first two questions, we can begin to define and explain and answer what is legalism. But why law in general? Well, in the absence of law, you have chaos. And the issue isn't, is there law, but whose law will govern? And that's so important when we take what we're learning in its historical context. Chaos, anarchy, will create a form of law. Law is fundamental to any society, even the most primitive tribes made rules or laws to govern the actions of their members. So here we are in Exodus chapter 19, and God is giving to the nation of Israel this law, and it's an extensive law. But let's read Exodus 19, 1 through 9. And then we will have a word of prayer and then jump into our study. Exodus 19, verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. Yahweh called out to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
the one he is about to give to them, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So he's going to give them this law. And it's an if-then law. If you obey, if you keep, then. Here are the consequences of that keeping of that obedience. Verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that Yahweh had commanded him. All the people answered together, and now consider their response. And they said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather as your people in this place. We have already celebrated the fact that we have these liberties. We can exercise these liberties without fear of outside persecution. Now as we come to your word, we pray that the Spirit of God will take the word of God and do a sure work in the people of God. We trust you. We we rest in you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. This particular text has three moving parts. The first part is the historical context of verses 1 and 2. Many consider verses 3 through 6 the heartbeat of this particular paragraph, the if-then clause. That will give us the conditions of the treaty that are given to the nation of Israel. And then finally, the willingness of the people. When they heard all that God was saying, they said, we're all in. We are willing to obey. We are willing to keep. But let's take a look at the larger context in which we find this particular text. Chapters 1 through 15, you have Israel in Egypt. God has delivered them from Egypt. He's leading them back into Eden. Chapters 16 through 18, which we considered last week, is Israel in the wilderness. They kept needing food. They kept needing water. They were constantly complaining. They were constantly grumbling, and God was continuing to meet their need. God was calling out to the nation to simply trust him, to believe him. They are now at Mount Sinai, and all of us have heard that idea. Israel's at Mount Sinai, and they're going to remain at Mount Sinai all the way through the book of Leviticus to Numbers chapter 10. But they're here at Mount Sinai, and they're about to receive the law. We've also learned and looked at this idea that in this whole dynamic of delivering them from Egypt, Jesus Christ is for them the sin bearer. He takes upon himself the condemnation that they justly deserve. We also see that Jesus Christ is that Passover lamb. Because of Jesus... God passes over the sins of the people, and then the parting of the Red Sea. God took them out of Egypt. He's now going to lead them into Eden, into Canaan, the promised land. We see that Jesus is both the center and the source of that life. On a larger scale, we have to remember that they're coming out of Egypt. For 430 years, Israel lived in a nation governed by the unbelieving Egyptians. So they had this law over them. That is the law that they obeyed. And Israel will now enter into a land that's occupied and governed by its unbelieving inhabitants, the Canaanites. Now, in the absence of the Egyptians, and as they go into the land of Canaan, God is going to give them this law. This law is going to govern that nation. It's going to control how they engage one another and the surrounding nations. That law has several moving parts. The law had rules and regulations, and we'll begin looking at them next week when we look at the Ten Commandments. 
but it has rules and regulations. It dictates how they are to live out their life in the horizontal. It has this Edenic-type tabernacle that reminds them of the Garden of Eden. It had a mediating priesthood. If they were going to do anything, it was coming through that Levitical priesthood. They had atoning sacrifices that would enable God on a temporary basis to cover their sins. And then they had these celebratory-type feasts. The law as we know it is far more expansive than we perhaps sometimes think. We think of the Ten Commandments or we think of the 613 rules and regulations. But it includes all these things of the priesthood. It includes this sacrificial system and these feast days. But all of this instruction, all of these things were a picture of something bigger than itself. The law was only a shadow and it always pointed. It did not provide. Like all shadow. The law could only point, it would not provide. The law said that you can't, but God can, and that Jesus indeed will or did. And the law, as given to the nation of Israel, protected the seed promise and projected or perpetuated the blood picture. So God gives the nation of Israel a law. They were in Egypt under Egyptian law. They're about to go into the land of Canaan, where you had Canaanite law, and God gives them his law. And this law is going to govern them as a nation. And it functioned as a picture, as a type. It was pointing them to something greater, to something more sure. And it was pointing them to the work of Jesus Christ. And this is interesting, and we don't have time to always explore these things in greater detail. And we have talked about these things often in the past. But when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night in John chapter 3, Jesus begins dialoguing with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can these things be? As Jesus begins to show how he is, as it were, in the text. And Jesus answered him and he said, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? The nation of Israel and all the rabbi and all the Levites had all these pictures. They had all these images. They had all these shadows. They had all these types. And all of those things were calling out to them. And everything was pointing to the Messiah. Everything was pointing to the Christ. Pictures and promises engulfed the nation. And that's why I think it's so important we come to church. I think it's so important that we have these exercises and disciplines. They are all shouting out to us. They're reminding us of the larger story in which we live. Jesus fully expected those who taught the law to know how it all spoke of him. All of these visuals reminded the nation of the story. Jesus rightly assumed anyone exposed to the law would be able to understand its intent. So as we read the Old Testament, what is the intent of the Old Testament? The intent of the Old Testament is to point us to Jesus. It shows us who Jesus Christ is. Now, let's consider the conditions of this law. So we know somewhat the historical context. We know that God is giving the nation of Israel the law. That law is going to govern them in the horizontal. They've left Egypt. They're heading toward Canaan, the promised land. Now, let's look at the conditions of the treaty. In verse 3 of chapter 19, it says, Yahweh called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, Tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He has already redeemed them out of Egypt. Now, therefore, if... You will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Then you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me. If you obey and if you keep, then you will be a kingdom of priests, a treasured possession, and a holy nation. 
if then. It's important to understand the nature of the covenant that God is cutting with the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 19. We've talked about these things. I, I believe it stands to be repeated. You have three types of covenants. A covenant among equals. Those are the types of covenants we have at a wedding. Two individuals come together and they cut a covenant. And it's a covenant among equals. You then have a royal gift covenant. And we've talked about this already. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God said that a woman will bring forth a seed that will crush the serpent's head, that is a royal gift covenant. In Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham, that is a royal gift covenant. The royal gift covenant is a redemptive covenant. In the royal gift covenant, God is going to save his people. You then have a vassal treaty. The vassal treaty is what's happening in Exodus chapter 19. You have a superior making stipulations, demands, commands to an inferior. If the inferior accepts and keeps and obeys the commands, the stipulations, then they will receive the consequences and avoid the curses. That is this vassal treaty. So it's interesting and it's important that we keep those two things in mind. The Garden of Eden, in the beginning, when God said to Adam and Eve, you can do anything you want except this one thing. You can't eat from that tree. That was a vassal treaty. If you obey, then you will have this life. If you disobey, then you'll bear its curse. That's a vassal treaty. That is not a royal gift covenant. Genesis 3.15, then, is the royal gift covenant. God condescends and he gives them this gift. I'm going to do this for you. He's going to provide an offspring from the woman who will destroy the enemy, and he provides a blood sacrifice that atones for their sins. The Mosaic covenant, that which has happened in their redemption or deliverance from Egypt, is a part of the covenant that God remembers. That's the royal gift. He now is establishing with the nation this vassal treaty. It has laws, it has stipulations, it has blessings, and it has cursings. But God's redemptive purpose is a royal gift. You know, I, I'm really hoping that somehow you're connecting these dots. So when you talk about Genesis 3.15 or 3.21, or you talk about the Abrahamic covenant, that's God's royal gift covenant. That's redemptive. That's unconditional. When you talk about the Mosaic Code, the Mosaic Covenant, the law, that is a vassal treaty between God and the nation of Israel. Why is this important? Well, first, God's redemptive purpose is a gift. God's redemptive purpose is a gift. Jesus Christ is that gift. God extends that gift to us, and all we have to do is what? Believe, receive, accept it. That's all we have to do. There's no stipulations. There's no commandments. All you have to do is receive it. Jesus is a royal gift covenant, that new covenant. Why is that important? Because it is a gift. Secondly, God's governance of the nation of Israel is a vassal treaty. It is not a royal gift. The two are not the same. God is not saving Israel in the Mosaic Code or the law. Do you hear what I'm saying? Because that's some of our confusion today. We are making the Mosaic Code a royal gift. And it's not a royal gift. It's a vassal treaty between God and his people, the nation of Israel. And if you confuse these things, what happens is that you make the Mosaic Code do something that it was never intended to do. The Mosaic Code cannot save you. It is not God's redemptive purpose. 
the royal gift is. The Mosaic Code is God's governance of that nation. God saves Israel as a royal gift. And if we impose God's redemptive purpose onto the vassal treaty, it leads to heresy. How do I know this? Well, this is where you have the book of Galatians. The reason why we have the book of Galatians is because people take the Mosaic Code and they make it into a royal gift, and it's not. The Mosaic Code is God's governance of Israel. Look with me at Galatians chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. I'll, I'll, I'll read the text for us in Galatians 3, 17 through 19. And when I read it, I believe you'll see, hopefully, clearer what I'm talking about. In Galatians chapter 3, because now you have this thing going on. Well, God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. We know that. And now he's cutting a covenant through Moses to the nation of Israel. How do those two things work? Because this is referred to as promise, the royal gift covenant, and this is referred to as law, the Mosaic Code. So how do those two things play well together? Verse 17 of Galatians 3. What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. The law does not override the promise. This is a royal gift. This is if then. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? If this whole thing, if my, re, my, my relationship with God is established by the royal gift, then why did he introduce law? Well, one of the reasons why law is introduced at this point inside the story is that it was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise has been made. There is a reason as to why the law exists with Israel, but God's redemptive purposes are coming through the royal gift. What Moses is now receiving and the, the nation is accepting is this vassal treaty, these stipulations, these commands. So let's go back to the... Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Notice what it says within our text. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then, notice what happens. If you do this, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Conditional sentences, that's what we have here, generally have two parts. The first clause, which is called the protasis, the pro, the protasis, and the main or then clause called the apotasis, that which follows. The protasis establishes the premises or conditions. Here we have if you obey, if you keep, under which the action or state of the apotasis occurs. If you do this, then you will become that treasured possession. Then you will become a royal priesthood. Then you will become a holy nation. But if you don't do this, the following will not happen. That's what you have in this. But what's interesting for me is in this statement, the treasured possession. It is found in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. It's clearly stated as conditional. If, then. Then it's repeated in Deuteronomy 7, 6. Deuteronomy 14, 2. Deuteronomy 26, 18 and 19. It's then found in Psalm 135, verse 4, where the psalmist says, you are a treasured possession. 
And then Malachi, a post-exilic prophet in chapter 3, verse 17, speaks of a future believing remnant as the treasured possession. But think about this with me. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. It's one of the great passages in the Pentateuch. But notice how it is stated in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. It says here, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not. Now listen to what happens here. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that, the, that Yahweh set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because Yahweh loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that Yahweh has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, therefore, Yahweh, your God, is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. What is interesting to me is that Israel never could, in their own effort, become this treasured possession. They could never become a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Whatever Israel received from God, it was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Yahweh alone. And yet Exodus 19 is a vassal treaty. It is an if-then covenant. Our salvation is a royal gift. He gives it to us. And what we see in all of this, what we will see, because we are in the front end of understanding 19 through 40, chapters 19 through 40. But what we will see is that Israel never met the conditions laid out in this vassal treaty. The nation of Israel never, because of their own abilities, became this treasured possession among all peoples. And they were never this kingdom of priests and holy nations. The prophet Malachi does indeed identify the believing remnant as those who would become this, but the nation collectively never became this. What Israel, and here's the thing that is so startling about this entire study, is that what Israel failed to do, Jesus did. And because of his obedience, of his law-keeping, we, his people, become the treasured possession. We become kingdom of priests and holy nations. Now, before you jump ahead and start charging me with replacement theology, and if you don't know what that means, good. We're talking about typology and shadow. We're not talking about replacement theology. What Israel could not do, Jesus did. And because of his absolute and perfect obedience, we become that treasured possession but notice the response of the people. We see the historical context. There is a reason why God gives to the nation of Israel this law. We see the content of that treaty. It's an if-then proposition. If they keep, if they obey, then all these things will follow. And that idea is reiterated in chapter 23, verse 22. It's also seen elsewhere inside of our text. Israel says, we're all in, we're all in. This is the willingness of the people in verses 7 and 8. Notice what it says inside our text. And I love the response. Because if you and I were sitting there and we heard all these things and, and we were asked the question, hey, are you all in? Do you love Jesus? Do you want to obey Jesus? Do you want to keep his commandments? What are you going to say? No. Not me, not in my lifetime. No, we'd all be in, right? We have a heart that's bent toward obedience. We want that. So their response warms my heart. In verses 7 and 8, So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that Yahweh had commanded him. 
And all the people answered together and said, All that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. Amen. That is awesome, man. I love that. And then in chapter 23, verse 22, listen to their response again. 23, 22, if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. This is what God is going to do. And in chapter 24, verses 3 and 7, Moses came and told the people all the words of Yahweh and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words of Yahweh that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. Verse 7, then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Man, my heart beats with them. I'm all in. I am all in. We hear the same thing in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 19. Romans 7 is one of those perplexing passages, and we wonder, well, is this a saved individual or an unsaved individual? But in Romans 7, 14 through 19, verse 15 says, What I want to do, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. When we read Romans 7, we think, man, that's me. I want to obey, I want to keep, but I am a miserable, miserable, a miserable failure. That's a miserable. I'm a miserable. I mean, I, I want to do it. I mean, temptation's coming my way, and I'm trying to say no, 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 and everything in me is going, yes, yes, yes. So I understand, but I love the fact that, hey, here's what we need from you, and they're like, we're all in. We have that same kind of struggle, so what do we do? Because if the blessing is a consequence of obedience, I'm never going to get it. I don't deserve it. I need something more. Well, fortunately for us, our redemption is not found in the vassal treaty. Our redemption is found in the royal gift. And what you and I cannot do, God can, and Jesus did. See, what Israel could not do, Jesus did. Listen to how this ties together. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, you have this, this conditional statement made concerning this vassal treaty. If you obey, if you keep, then you will become. Israel never did. But listen to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Matthew chapter 5. This is so cool when you start seeing how these dots connect. And that's what I meant earlier when I said, it's impossible on a human level to understand how this thing tells a single story unless it is divinely inspired. Because it tells a single story and at the center of it is Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, listen. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Here they are sitting before the people. Could they keep it? Could they obey it? They failed at every turn. In fact, they immediately began to neglect Passover. They were failing. And Jesus says, what they could not do, I've done. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That is what Jesus did. And because Jesus has kept that law, 1 Peter 2, 9 can say, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. 
You are a holy nation. You are a people of God's own possession. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We become this nation, as it were, this church, these people who are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And we are proclaiming the name of Yahweh, the name of Jesus to everyone, everywhere, at all times. But because of Jesus, this is what he has done in our behalf and what Israel could not do. Jesus has done. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that imagery. Jesus Christ does what Israel can't do. He kept the law. And as a consequence of him keeping the law, I accept his work in my behalf. I accept, I accept his work in my behalf. I accept what he has done in fulfilling that royal gift covenant. I accept what he has done in relation to the Mosaic Code. He has done for me what I could have never done for myself. If my redemption was based on obedience, I would fail. But one has come who has kept that law perfectly. And as a consequence of him keeping that law and me being now in him, I become that treasured possession, that holy nation, that royal priesthood. So what Israel failed to do, Jesus did. Jesus keeps that law perfectly, and he becomes this to the Father and for the nations. What do we do with all this? Well, first, know the story. Know the story. I mean, as we study the book of Exodus, we're putting it in this historical context. We're looking at it theologically, typologically, but know the story. Don't talk gobbledygook. I had to look that up. Gobbledygook with the scripture. Know your Bible. Join us for our various studies. We have a multitude of studies going on on a weekly basis, and let me encourage you to join us for those studies if you are able. Listen to the sermons over and over and over again. Read the sermon notes. Ask God to help you understand these things. As it relates to the law, always obey and try your hardest in the horizontal knowing full well that your relationship with God in the vertical is not based on your obedience, but on his. Jesus Christ has kept the commandments in your behalf. This is what he has done for you and me. And then finally, thank God for Jesus. And don't stop believing Jesus. Jesus is enough in this life and in life to come. Jesus is Lord. And God the Father has raised him from the dead. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have had to examine the text. Father, we know that it all points to you. And what Israel could not do, Jesus has done. And because of him and us believing him, we've become this treasured possession, this royal priesthood, this holy nation. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Help us to study the scripture, to understand the storyline, and to see how it all points to him. May this comfort us during this season in our lives. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.